Hello and welcome to Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast from Ohio Humanities. In this series, we explore democracy and the informed citizen. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and this episode is one of a number of special programs that we're publishing this year to mark 100 years of women gaining the right to vote in the USA. The 19th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified in August of 1920. More specifically today, we're going to be hearing about the role that women of color have played in the struggle for the right to vote. Joining me to talk about this is Dr. Treva Lindsay. Dr. Lindsay is an associate professor of women's, gender, and sexuality studies at The Ohio State University. African-American women's history is one of her areas of specialization, and she's the author of a book called Colored No More, Reinventing Black Womanhood in Washington, DC. Treva Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thank you, Rachel, so much for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Me too. So one of the landmark early moments in the movement for women's suffrage in the USA was the Seneca Falls Convention, which took place in 1848. But at that stage, the 13th Amendment was still some years in the future, the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. So how much were African-American women or other women of color involved early on in the fight for the right to vote? That's a great question. And I think Seneca Falls is such an important moment to think about in terms of this history. And it often is seen as this catapulting moment, this origin moment for suffrage activism, when in fact, a number of the women who we tend to associate with women's suffrage here in the U.S. are women who really get their training in activism from being involved in the anti-slavery movement, or more formally, the abolitionist movement. So many of the women, not all, but a good number of white women who were involved in Seneca Falls also were present and existing in various anti-slavery conventions that were happening around the nation prior to that. In fact, in the late 1830s, and the most notable one being the anti-slavery convention of 1837, where you did have white women speaking as well as a couple of black women in attendance. And at this anti-slavery convention, suffrage comes up. Voting rights for women comes up. Voting rights and more notably universal suffrage comes up as something to fight for, to be engaged with. And so I think it's important when we mark the history of suffrage in the U.S. and women's suffrage activism in the U.S. is to really date that back a little bit more into where these women really started asking those questions and who they were in conversation with, which did include free women of color as well as free men of color, and that they continued to grow and swell. And we reached the Seneca Falls Convention with this fragile but important solidarity. And now did that solidarity continue over the ensuing decades? Or was that something that was more uh, tenuous as time went on? So as we approach the Civil War, we see that there is a growing solidarity around abolitionist and anti-slavery activism with some who are involved in either or and some who are involved in both. But once we get to the Civil War, we get to the Emancipation Proclamation, which officially abolishes slavery alongside the 13th Amendment, and then the 14th Amendment, which provides equal citizenship uh, for all Americans, including the recently emancipated. And then the key one that's so important for the kind of solidarity that we talk about in women's suffrage movement or the lack thereof is the 15th Amendment, which essentially enfranchises black men legal black men legally 
although this doesn't happen in practice, and women's suffrage is not um, put into law. And this causes a huge fracture in the movie, a huge split in the movement from those who felt like it should have been a push for universal suffrage, those who rely on racist ideas about Black men to argue against and not support the 15th Amendment, for Black women who are caught in between these two movements, for white women who remained in conversation with Black women and Black men who were abolitionists and um, advocating for suffrage. And so you see the movement really fracture. So those solidarities, which had always been fragile because in a large part, we're talking about communities that have very different access to power, that have very different access to power. Mostly enslaved people have a different relationship to the government than people who are property owners, people who own slaves, and people who were still considered subordinate within their own households, like white women in relationship to their husbands, their brothers, their fathers, etc. And so when you have the 15th Amendment, which is also celebrating a huge anniversary this year, it's the sesquicentennial of the 15th Amendment, um, you see that split and it really causes kind of permanent damage to any semblance of solidarity that we saw in women's suffrage activism prior to that point. One of the leading figures at that time was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. I wonder if you can talk about her reaction to the 15th Amendment. Yes. So Elizabeth Cady Stanton is a a very complicated and and truly important um, figure. She had been very active abolitionist for many, many years uh, prior to this point. She is someone who is present at the Seneca Falls Convention. Her Declaration of Sentiments, which is this important document in terms of women's suffrage history, is presented at this convention. So she is a central figure to this. And her commitment to women's suffrage after the Civil War is one of the key schisms that happens in the women's rights movement because she declined to support the passage of the 14th and 15th Amendment. And she also opposed giving added legal protection and voting rights to African-American men. And she was very vocal about this and subsequently forms the National American Women's Suffrage Association that is really focused on women's suffrage and is not open to the idea of the importance or significance of African-American men voting. But she also remains in friendship with some key African-American figures and activists at this time. She has a lifelong relationship with Frederick Douglass, um, one of the most prominent abolitionists and speakers, activists of the 19th century, who even met with Lincoln, President Lincoln. You have her maintained relationship through her death with Mary Church Terrell, another very, very prominent activist who continues to be active in voting rights activism through her death in in the 1950s. And so even though her very public and political stance caused a lot of friction, there were still some behind the scenes conversations that were happening and relationships that remained intact, although they were deeply affected by her decision to be virulently opposed to the 15th Amendment. Yes, I can imagine. And when she formed this new party, the National Women's Suffrage Association, the Splinter Party, was she campaigning uniquely for white women's vote or was she oblique in her campaign? 
So she was part of this 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 association that so there was the American Women's Suffrage Association and the National Women's Suffrage Association and then there's the National American Women's Suffrage Association once the two of them merge. And so her leadership alongside um, folks like Susan B. Anthony, another really key figure in uh, the suffragist movement, as well as Carrie Chapman Catt, who's also involved here, really start to come together to bring these factions that split amidst this, this turmoil, amidst the schism of who supported the 15th Amendment and who did not. And so she's president of this newly formed organization for only about two years because she does have this particular attention to white women accessing the right of vote and really universally women. I would not say she was particularly against black women and getting the right to vote. In fact, she had long been an advocate of women, regardless of race, getting the right to vote. But when black men were put into the mix and women wholesale were left aside, this is when some of that kind of racist dialogue comes in and these racist sentiments emerge. And so it's important to think about that in the context of the organizations that are forming in the wake of the passage and ratification of the 15th Amendment. So looking back 150 years later, it seems to me that one sees this progression in suffrage. So Black men get the right to vote and then after 50 further years, women get the right to vote. And it doesn't seem that those two things are in opposition to one another. Why was this such a a faction-causing event, the 15th Amendment? There's a couple of answers, a couple of ways to respond to that. I think looking at this, if you had been working for the last, almost at this point, you know, 30 or so years on a particular cause that brings us closer to this idea of universal suffrage, because her idea was that by also enfranchising Black women and men already had the right to vote, that emancipation in and of itself would provide men with the right to vote. And so this idea that an entire segment of a population that you had been advocating for is being left out of these crucial and history-making amendments is definitely something to push back against. That being said, the way in which she pushed back against that and how she talked about what it meant for Black men to vote versus white women to vote is deeply problematic and is deeply reflexive of some unchecked racism that existed at the time. Now, it's important, however, to put this in the context that although we see this progression from 1870 to 1920, that in actuality, Black men were being barred from voting through all kinds of measures, especially after the passage of Black codes throughout the South in particular, which were codes that segregated and policed Black people's movements and participation in public spaces, including in civic life and politics and electoral processes. And this is further exacerbated by the 1896 Supreme Court decision in Plessy versus Ferguson, which guarantees separate but equal, and really creates the context for what we now know as Jim Crow America, which is separate and deeply unequal um, excitations. So most Black men still weren't able to actually vote, although there was a constitutional amendment. States were 
easily able to find ways to disenfranchise Black men in spite of that constitutional amendment. And so one of the things we often talk about in our discussion of suffrage activism is the faith that these activists, uh, women suffrage activists, put in a constitutional amendment, given what we had seen with the constitutional amendment being passed that gave Black men the right to vote, but could not be effectively enacted and protected because of racism. We were trying to think how would sexism impact the ability to effectively enact uh, an amendment for the guaranteeing of women's right to the elected franchise. Right, right. And of course, having the right to vote and actually being able to vote is an ongoing issue. And we'll come back to that later in this interview. But I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about what happened around the turn of the century. I gather these two organizations that were created after the passing of the 15th Amendment, then reunited, as you mentioned a little earlier, in the National American Woman Suffrage Association. Now, can you tell us a little bit about this organization and whether it included people of color in its membership, in its supporters and so on? So the bringing together of this certainly meant that now you absolutely had individuals who were part of these this organization, this newly formed merged organization that supported broad enfranchisement, that was supportive of the fact that the 15th Amendment had passed, but was still deeply committed to women having access to the elective franchise. And so the American Women's Suffrage Association had both men and women in it. So this is one of the organizations that feeds into this joint organization that emerges. So what you have in this merged organization is a lot of different political outlooks. It's not one perspective. I would say the overarching agenda, of course, is still women's suffrage, but you have very different political commitments under this big umbrella at this point. And so it's important to note that even within this organization, you have quite a bit of diversity and range that's happening here. And so while you do have Black women who are engaging here and who are um, who are in these conversations with NASA, which is kind of the acronym for it, you also have a number of Black women who are organizing in their own spaces. This is the height of the club women's movement in the United States, which were organizations that were formed by women at local state levels and then had national kind of federated bodies that were the umbrellas for these that were committed to different kinds of causes, whether that was temperance or thinking about education, thinking about cleanliness and modesty. You had these club women that were forming and African-American women really set up a number of their own organizations and clubs to advocate for suffrage, recognizing that they had encountered such virulent racism, both prior to these, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments passing, but certainly after and seeing that fracturing. So you have some organizations that form that are specifically looking at Black women and Black women advocating for women's suffrage and voting rights more broadly. And then you have some mixed race, interracial solidarity organizations that are also trying to operate. And NASA operates in this kind of mixed space within that with some tensions, although there were African-American women who were engaged there. 
we're talking mostly about African-American women at the moment, but were there other people of color involved in this struggle? Absolutely. And one of the exciting things that the commemoration of the 19th Amendment has really prompted is more robust conversations and digging into the archives to uncover some of these histories. And so what we do know is that you have Native American women who are involved and engaged in talking about this. You have a very strong Jewish women contingent that's very much so involved in discussions around voting rights and enfranchisement. You also have a growing immigrant population that's invested in this. So there's recent immigrants from Western Europe, but also from the late 19th century onward, we're also talking about a substantial population of Chinese immigrants who become part of these conversations. Now, they're typically, uh, these other groups um, are not in these main organizations in the same way that you see African-American women are, but their presence is noted and their presence becomes very important as we move along in the 20th century beyond the 19th Amendment being passed and ratified into other groups being amended into or enfranchised through various acts and legal processes throughout the 20th century. And that is definitely indebted to women uh, from Native American communities, women, Chinese immigrant women uh, that are advocating for the rights of women universally and specifically. Right. So returning to these uh, larger and better known organizations, you talked a little bit about there being tensions between the white activists and the African-American activists. Can you give us an idea of what some of these tensions were about? So some of these tensions boiled over from how many African-American women did support the 15th Amendment, feeling that African-Americans could at least have some representation that they did not have prior to the Civil War, and certainly not while they were emancipated, that a lot of feelings among African-American women, and understandably so given the political context, is that the majority of African-Americans in this nation were formerly enslaved people and are the first generation outside of chattel slavery. And so their demands, their political agendas were very much so tied to the peculiar condition under which they had been granted citizenship. These are individuals who are largely defined as three-fifths of a person at one point in the 19th century. So the political impulse, the political imperative for African-Americans advocating for the right to vote across gender is super important to put at the center of a political agenda for a number of African-American women who identify as suffragists. And so when you're grappling with organizations who don't have that fundamental or concrete understanding of the unique position in which African-Americans and peoples of African descent in the U.S. found themselves post-emancipation, what happens is some of these same racist ideas about Black people come to the surface in discussions across these different groups and shape the agendas that become the primary agendas of these larger organizations that often leave out some of the specificity and particularity that African-Americans and more specifically African-American women were demanding. And this causes real tension uh, that this racism can creep in, this prioritization in which some of the women are like, look, we're going to use a Southern strategy. We know that the South is fearful that if African-Americans are enfranchised, that they will lose power in the South, particularly after the Civil War and where you had enslaved people who 
in many places constituted a large percentage of the population there. That was definitely, definitely something that was feared there. And so some of the suffragists could play to some of the racist ideas that forwarded that to kind of garner support for white women being able to vote as opposed to black people being enfranchised, that we would continue to shore up existing political agendas and what's important here, not to have this white power structure in the South, the Jim Crow South, be overthrown. In terms of kinds of uh, women involved, were the African-American women involved from across all classes of society or were they mainly people who came from a more educated and privileged background? I know one of the key figures is Mary Church Terrell, and she came from quite a privileged background. Absolutely. I mean, compared to most people in that time, she certainly came from her family is known as one of the uh, first African-American millionaires. So she absolutely comes from a place of privilege and still was enduring many of the injustices that other black folks were, but in, in many ways was protected from them as well because of her class status, her educational status. Um, she is my fellow Oberlin alum. So Mary Church Terrell, I think for me is this truly unsung kind of hero who lives this incredible life in which she's touching almost every major movement from the late 19th century until she passes away in 1954. And she passes away right before Brown versus the Board of Education passes, which is the Supreme Court case that desegregates public schools in the United States. So she is born in 1863, so she's born a free Black woman. She is born to a prominent family in Memphis, Tennessee, and it's part of the kind of Black elite there. And she eventually leaves Memphis and is attending schools in Ohio and at Oberlin College, which was the first college in the United States to have an open admissions policy, meaning that women and people, regardless of race, could attend Oberlin. So she is one of the Black women who attends there and is partially kind of radicalized, I would say, around being committed to equality and justice and rights because Oberlin itself has this abolitionist tradition. And she goes on from there, becomes a the first African-American woman to ever be appointed to a school board of a major city in Washington, D.C. She is one of the founding members of the NAACP, as well as the Colored Women's League of Washington. She also helped found the National Association of Colored Women, another national body for Black club women, and also one of the founding members of the National Association of College Women, which was an organization for African-American women who attended college and graduated from college. So she's a founder of many things. She's a pioneer of many things. And she is protesting well into her 80s. Um, And uh, one of her most notable protests in her 80s is when she's protesting to desegregate lunch counters in Washington, D.C. And she's on the picket line in her big coat with her sign protesting. And so she is someone who is at the table at the most prominent tables, both in the US and in Europe, advocating for equality, women's equality, racial equality, and suffrage is one of the main ways that she shows up. She befriends many of the prominent white women, suffragists throughout her life, remains friends with them even after they refuse to continue to support African-Americans. 
advocating for their rights to vote after the passage of the 19th Amendment. She maintains a lot of relationships. She is this very privileged woman, but who never shirks what she feels is her responsibility to be an advocate and a voice because of this privilege. Um, she's somewhat of an exceptional figure. I think a number of suffragists that we come to know are fairly prominent women, are middle-class or upper-class elite women, but the archive tells us that protest, at organizing events in communities and whatnot, you see this as a cross-class effort on the ground. I think the most prominent spokespersons and faces of women's suffrage activism, particularly for African-American women, came from a fairly elite class of women, mostly college-educated women. Another name that you hear often in connection with the fight for African-American civil rights, including suffrage, is Sojourner Truth. What role did she play in this movement? Sojourner Truth is instrumental and in, into the ways that we think about the suffrage movement. I mean, she's someone, again, who is speaking quite intently about this. She is someone who is not born free. So she is someone who is deeply impacted by slavery. And in the resulting freedom, she is someone who ties this to both her religious background as she becomes someone deeply invested in the Methodist church and getting involved with the broader abolitionist movement as she is free prior to the Emancipation Proclamation and the Civil War. And through this, she becomes an abolitionist and a speaker. And she tied the abolitionist movement very intently to suffrage. That was very, very important to her. So she's speaking about equal rights and articulating this in different places. So she's speaking to the American Equal Rights Association about suffrage, about what it means to ensure that women have equal rights. And so she really sets out on this mission to be this kind of voice that can articulate this as a formerly enslaved person and as this committed champion for women's rights and the biggest right that we tend to think of in that period for actualizing full citizenship is the right to vote. So returning to this issue of tensions between the various groups of people fighting for the right for women to have the vote, in your book, Coloured No More, you describe an event which took place in 1913, which seems to be a microcosm of all these kinds of um, tensions on a kind of public stage. Can you tell us a little bit about that event, the Suffrage Parade? Yes, the Suffrage Parade of March 1913 was this huge spectacle of an event that was being held in Washington to really push um, the current president, Woodrow Wilson, to really think more intently about getting this amendment through, through Congress and getting the state's support behind it as it required a certain number of states' uh, support for its ratification and passage. And in this march, if you look at the map of the processional, you don't even see the contingents of African-American women aren't even marked on the map. They felt that African-American women being in with their clubs from their different state delegations or African-American women even being featured prominently in the march would further complicate their investment in getting women's suffrage to be taken seriously by the federal government and by other uh, state government, state leaders. And so African-American women, for the most part, marched in the back, were forced to march in the back, are not recognized in the formal processional, and are in 
enduring even more jeers and potential violence than their white counterparts who are dressed in all kinds of things, costuming and all of that. And they're dressed in their formal, mostly kind of uh, big skirt dresses that we think of from the early 20th century and marching with these banners. You have few exceptions, such as uh, Ida B. Wells, who's also known as a tremendous suffragist, anti-lynching activist, racial and gender justice activist of the late 19th and early 20th century, who runs up to her state delegations club and marches with them to integrate the march and to say that our voting rights matter just as much as yours. Our activism, our presence here is equally important. But to know that the organizers of the parade were very hesitant to have Black women present, let alone fully integrated into the march, once again shows how these tensions along these racial fault lines and more specifically these racist fault lines played out in some of these big, notable moments in suffrage activism. Was there the fear that if African-American women and women of color more generally were seen as part of this national campaign, then it might deter the people in power from allowing women to have the right to vote? Was there an idea that, oh, well, just give it to the white women and then we can think about the women of color later on? I think absolutely there was this sense that African-American women would be a liability for white suffragists in this, that getting white Southern states on board meant turning your back on African-American women and African-American voting rights more broadly. And so I think that there are those who believe, okay, this will be a delayed thing, not altogether throwing them away. And there were others who were very comfortable with investing in the Southern strategy and allowing racism to color, (laughs) language to affect how they were going to mobilize and organize around women's suffrage. My understanding is that, at least amongst white women, there were female opponents to the idea of suffrage. There were certain women who thought that women should not be able to vote. Was that the same amongst African-American women or other women of color? Or was there a more general feeling that getting the right to vote would be a good thing? That's a great question. I think what we know is that there were women of all races who were opposed to women's suffrage, who deeply invested in the idea that women should not be voting and that that was not women's place in the world. What I will say among African-Americans, I think the unique condition of having been formerly enslaved people for the most part, put a different onus on what voting might open up in terms of possibility for African-Americans more broadly. And so I think you see more buy-in across class, across differences even within African-American communities that saw a more robust kind of support for women's suffrage among African-Americans. But there are certainly African-American women who were glad that the 15th Amendment passed because they felt it was men's duty and responsibility to vote and to represent their households. So when the 19th Amendment was passed, was there a sense of surprise that it did apply to all women? Or how did that come about, that final decision to make it for all women rather than just white women? Because the 15th Amendment had already made it at least in law and right, according to the Constitution, that race could not be a discriminatory factor with women's suffrage, 
in theory, that would mean any person, regardless of sex, in this case, male and female, or race would be able to vote. We, however, know the practice of this looks very different because we know how deeply entrenched disenfranchising practices, including violence, including threats to livelihoods and businesses in African-American communities had actually prevented African-American men from voting, that the guarantee of women being able to vote would similarly enfranchise white women in practice. There's the idea that if you have both the 15th and the 19th Amendment, that that kind of covers it in terms of race and sex. However, it doesn't. So after the amendment is ratified, is there a kind of like immediate falling away of this movement? Or to what extent do people remain involved to make sure that people on the ground are actually able to vote? It's not just in law only. It's actually something that takes place on the ground. It's state by state that you see some variances among this because NASA forms what we now know as the League of Women Voters after it's ratified. And the League of Women Voters commitment was to, now that we have the right to vote, how do we actually educate people on how to vote and to get people engaged in the voting process? And so that is a shift that does happen. And state by state, this looks different, whether the state includes different groups in Ohio, for instance, at the form of the League of Women Voters Ohio, which is also celebrating its 100th um, this year. You also see in this that they have groups from across the spectrum represented here. You have Black women who are at the table, Jewish women, nurses, daughters of the American Revolution, so a more conservative group, are all at the table initially when it comes to League of Women Voters Ohio. That doesn't mean that racism and classism and other isms don't play out here, but it is something of note that in a state like Ohio, you do see this possibility for this interracial cooperation, this cross-class collaboration as well. Um, But that doesn't happen in all states and how that plays out in all states varies. What you do see, however, with the League of Women Voters across the country is this attempt to really not just ensure that women are voting, but ensure that they know what the vote means, how to vote, how to participate fully in this process that's attended there. What you don't see is a number of prominent women suffragists then turning their energy around voting rights to other groups that are demanding voting rights. That does not happen in any substantive or significant way, which only further kind of bolsters a historical reflection that suggests that this racial solidarity was one of convenience for getting this amendment passed and that really grappling with racism and the disparities between women of different races didn't happen at the level that some assumed it might once NASA is formed and once certain critiques are made in these public spaces. So what have been the primary issues preventing people from voting since the 19th Amendment? And are these still issues today? For women specifically, I mean, even though this passes, doesn't mean that culture changes necessarily or that your family changes. So fear of reprisal. What will your husband, your father, your brother, your uncle, men in your community who may have been opposed to women's suffrage 
think and what barriers are in individuals' lives to prevent them from voting. Up until 1964, there could be poll taxes. So there were economic barriers to being able to vote. Uh, if you lived in the Washington, D.C., it wasn't until 1961 that you could participate in presidential elections because of the nature of D.C., not as a state. Tax payment and wealth requirements were also in place in different states regarding voting. And that doesn't get a national pushback until 1966. And so money is often a barrier, family and, and culture, uh, certain sexist ideas about who should vote. And then for African-Americans in particular, we see violent repercussions for those attempting to even register to vote throughout the 20th century. You see that culminate in a moment like Selma, Selma, Alabama, and the march led by folks like Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, and these prominent civil rights leaders who are marching from Selma to Montgomery to advocate for the Voting Rights Act to be passed, which would, in effect, secure the right to vote for African Americans in a way that the 15th Amendment had not done and the 19th Amendment had not done for African American women either. That produces Bloody Sunday when police officers are unleashed on peaceful protesters and protesters are beaten and people are killed. And so I think it's also important when we talk about suffrage and voting rights more broadly, that this is a bloody history. This is not a peaceful history by any stretch, that there are people who are killed attempting to access the right to vote. And my understanding more recently is that certain states want to introduce a form of identity card, which will enable people to vote. And I know there's a lot of opposition to these cards on the basis that it's going to prevent um, marginalized people from being able to vote. Can you tell me a little bit about that? One of the things that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 does, and it's interesting, we're also celebrating the 55th anniversary of that <laughs> voting rights legislation this year, is that it requires states that have had this history of disenfranchisement, particularly in the South, to get a preclearance for their guidelines regarding voting. So what are their guidelines in terms of what they can require for someone to be able to vote, to be able to register to vote, et cetera. And so the federal government would have to approve those because what we've noticed is that there can be instances in which states initiate policies and regulations that can disenfranchise. So something like an ID law, a particular kind of photo ID that would be necessary to vote can be cost prohibitive for some people. Some people don't have those IDs because of various barriers. If you can't get an ID without having paid off certain fines. So it has a class marker. African-American and Latino voters are less likely to have the kind of photo IDs that are being required by these different states. And so it intently can disenfranchise uh, poor and of color communities, which is why you see the prominent pushback. Right. So it's another hurdle that is more difficult for certain sections of society. Right. And so it was seen as one of the biggest rollbacks in modern history around voting rights, because what we've tended to see since 
1870 with the passage of the 15th is that there's a more expansive elective franchise. So you get the 19th Amendment in 1920 and 1924. Native Americans through the Indian Citizenship Act have the right to vote in U.S. elections. 1943 is when Chinese immigrants get the right to vote. And then you have the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which essentially is one of the most comprehensive voting rights acts that's passed. And then in 1971, you have the age for voting dropped from 21 to 18. So what we see is this continuous expansion of the right to vote and who can vote and who can access the vote. Amidst that, you also had the prohibition of poll taxes so that it wasn't cost prohibitive or tax payment or wealth requirements that are prohibited as well. And from about 1996 until 2018, we saw a number of efforts by states to restore rights to the formerly incarcerated populations. But it's interesting to see how different mechanisms make it so that certain populations can be amended out of justice that can be legally unprotected when it comes to voting rights. And so 2013 was this turning point because we started to see a more robust and concentrated effort on limiting voting rights as opposed to expanding voting rights, which it had been the pattern largely for the last hundred plus years. And what about in the state of Ohio? Are there any particular issues we should be aware of here? Well, we want to make sure we have election security, how districts are drawn, how districts are constructed to ensure that representation truly reflects the population, the diversity of the populations that are here. Thinking about early voting and expanding early voting, mail-in and absentee possibilities. These are all things that, in particular, an organization like the League of Women Voters Ohio are working on. So Ohio being not one of the more egregious states in terms of limiting voting rights, but thinking about as a state is an opportunity for us to think about how to be more expansive and inclusive in how we think about voting rights, that the move historically has been to expand and not to restrict with regards to who gets to vote. And I think Ohio has an opportunity to continue expanding upon that with our own uh, things that can be decided within the state. Well, Dr. Treva Lindsay, I'm going to let you go now because I've taken up a lot of your time already, but I want to thank you so much for coming on this podcast and sharing all your insights with us. It was such a pleasure to speak with you as well. Dr. Treva Lindsay is an Associate Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at The Ohio State University, and she's the author of Colored No More, Reinventing Black Womanhood in Washington, D.C., and you can find out more about her work at the link given in the notes which accompany this podcast. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and this is Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast of Ohio Humanities, which is the state-based partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed here don't necessarily reflect those of the National Endowment. This program is part of Democracy and the Informed Citizen, an initiative administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. The project seeks to deepen our knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. Many thanks to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for their generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for their partnership. Sokolovsky Music at sokolovskymusic.com provided the opening and closing tracks. 
To learn more about Ohio Humanities podcasts and other projects and programs, please visit ohiohumanities.org.